You're listening to Flipping Tables on Sunrise Robot. Find out how you can support us at sunriserobot.net slash support. Hey, you're listening to Flipping Tables, episode 81. I'm one of your hosts, David Lyons. And I'm your other host, Michael Edwards. And I am using a brand new pointing device called an Apple Magic Mouse that Whoa. when I told you about, Mike, you said you were excited for me to hate quit it. <laughs> Which may not happen. I don't know. I'm waiting to hear what you say, but... <laughs> Well, I so I immediately disabled half the gestures. Like I could tell, right out of the gate, I was like, "Yeah, the back, the the stupid like, oh, I want to go back in Safari. Like that's out." Yeah. Um, I did disable the what do they call it the the alternate click or the second click? You know, like a right click. Um, I did disable that, and I've just been control clicking with the keyboard. Um, but being able wow. to one, one finger <laughs> scroll is kind of cool. And I am probably going to get a repetitive stress injury in my hand from keeping yeah. it like arced up over the surface of the mouse because <laughs> yeah. it's so freaking flat. Yeah. It's like holding on to a little tiny iPhone 3. That's one of my biggest problems that it's so flat to the surface of the table that I, my hands just get cramped. And I have kind of big hands, so it's just worse for me, I think. Well, we'll see. This is one of those things where if you want to know how the right way to design a mouse that people are going to use for hours and hours on end, you look to gaming mice, right? Like those big, they're huge. Like it's a giant thing you clutch. Yeah. I have a magic mouse that sits in my closet all the time. And you know, every once in a while I've gotten it out and I just, I can't last a day. Like the the trackpad (laughs) is so much better. Or I have a, you know, a $15 Logitech mouse that I sometimes like if I want a game or something like a first person shooter, it's great. I don't need anything more <laughs> fancy than that. Yeah, I think I, I'd wanted to try the Magic Mouse because the trackpad was starting to get awkward to me to like have to fix my arm at that angle. So I'm thinking if the Magic Mouse doesn't work out, I may go the, the $15 Logitech route, but I think I may be going back to a mouse full time. I also realized that not having the trackpad like mission control or expose or whatever that will force me to use keyboard shortcuts more often so that's kind of part of my my incentive to use a mouse over the trackpad because man i love those little explodey gestures (laughs) i don't even i love the trackpad i don't even use that gesture um i just press the f4 or whatever it is uh command f no command f3 i don't even think about it it's just muscle memory (laughs) i think you're better with keyboard shortcuts than me because you I think you're even more obsessed with efficiency than I am. Like, you're like, oh, this will save me an eighth of a second. I will do it that way forever now. <laughs> so uh, a little bit of, I guess it's sort of follow up. I don't know how. It's a little short story time. Um, so I've been, you know, living the smarter cloud life with my photos, where you don't put all your eggs in one service, but you just kind of let everyone have your photos. Um, <laughs> Because, you know, I have iCloud Photo Drive or whatever it's called now. And uh, I also have Google Photos turned on. And one of the nice things I just discovered about it is, uh, so, you know, every once in a while, your photo library gets infected with a bunch of screenshots. Um, (laughs) Stuff you decided to share real quick, whether it's just like, hey, this thing screwed up, I'm showing someone else, or 
you know, it's sometimes it's just the most efficient way to share what's on your mobile screen instead of trying to find a link or something. And uh, yeah, after a while, you have a whole bunch of these things that don't have a long shelf life and you don't care about long term. I don't need that little screenshot of my watch to live forever in my photo library. And so I delete them. But what I'm not going to do is if I have my photo library mirrored across the cloud and across all services, I'm not going to spend my time going to them and deleting screenshots from all of them because that's bordering on no, this is not worth it. <laughs> um, well, when I pop, I opened Google Photos up after like a couple of days of not really paying attention to it, it said, hey, I noticed you deleted a bunch of screenshots, or it didn't say screenshots, it just said, I noticed you deleted a bunch of photos from your iCloud library. Do you want us to sync those deletes? And I was like, yep. <laughs> yes, so, Google, I do want that thing I didn't know was possible. <laughs> so I was I was very pleased to see this feature. And I know some people are like, that's like you wouldn't want your deletes to cascade in a bad way across the cloud where like I accidentally deleted my iCloud library and now Google's like so you want to delete your entire library. So does it do this every time or every time you log into or open up Google Photos does it ask you or was it a, it was a one time setting? It was asking me to set my setting for that and so now it's not asking me anymore but presumably I could go disable it. So you are definitely risking that like oh man I deleted my iCloud library so Google also deleted everything but I and, doubt it's like a immediate permanent delete though. I bet it's a trash can. <laughs> Oh, kind of for, thing. for sure. Google's been pretty good about having that like 30 day. I think it started with Gmail, but that like 30 day window of, yeah, you deleted something, but you know, you probably were wrong. <laughs> Here's an opportunity to get it back. Yeah. So that's just my little story of like, it's always fun to be delighted by one of those features that they don't advertise. You just show up and go, oh, this works exactly the way I suddenly now want it to. <laughs> Yeah, when I first saw this in the the notes, I thought you were talking about the delete sync across devices, which so I don't have uh, an iCloud photo library, but Google also like if you log into the web app and you say delete this stupid screenshot or whatever, it tells you, "Hey, we're also going to delete this if you shared it on Google Plus. We're also going to delete this if you have it on like your Nexus tablet as well as your phone. Like it's it's going to be gone gone, okay?" Which is nice because that's what I want. I want my photo library, not my phone photo library and my tablet yeah. photo library. Like I want those things unified. Exactly. You're so smart, but, Google. <laughs> so we've actually got a, a lot of gaming topics today, though there is some a little security TSA stuff that'll be fun too. But I figured we'd start with this uh, story we didn't get to last week, which is uh, that Industrial Light and Magic is creating some really, really cool stuff. And uh, if you're if you've been living under a rock for about fifty years, uh, ILM is the company that did the Star Wars special effects, but they haven't been lazy. They've been uh, actually creating special effects for some of the best, you know, most important movie landmarks um, of all time, and they're they're still actively participating in this. And uh, you know, they're doing stuff for the new Star Wars films. But uh, this article is about their interesting projects and experiments with virtual reality. And, uh, you know, one of the Verge editors got to go um, put on these glasses with special motion capture balls attached. And uh, he's interacting with this uh, raptor that's basically right in front of him that's being controlled by a different motion capture artist. And uh, if you watch no other part of the video, you have to watch 
that part because it's really funny when it cuts to the motion capture guy because he's like every bit as like strange and nerdy as you'd expect well he's in the the black suit with the balls <laughs> and he's imitating a velociraptor so he looks <laughs> insane yeah um but you know they're they're talking about how you know they're they're collaborating with filmmakers and they're trying to think about new ways to tell stories and new ways that the viewer can be more participators in storytelling um, with filmmakers and sort of exploding the whole idea of cinema um, with VR. And it looks really fun, looks really interesting. So the thing that I really was impressed with, because this is in in good Verge fashion, because I think Verge has like the split of really good, awesome reporting and then like really buzzfeedy garbage. So this is like their really good, detailed, in-depth side. And the, the article is kind of long and the video is long, but it's super interesting to watch. And the guy is, you know, you just see this like projection onto a screen, right? So it's like a like a 90-degree angle, like the corner of a room, and there's a projection of this raptor on it. And the the technicians are explaining to him how it works. And they're with like a tablet device and they have like a little Wiimote and they're just grabbing like entire artifacts in the environment like trees and they're like now we want that tree over there and now we're going to do this over there and i think uh the guy who i guess is 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 like kind of in charge of this whole project they built an entire virtual set and then they were showing it to a director before they built the physical set and he had you know the the headset on and he's like looking around you know doing the vr thing where he's like turning his head and he looks like a crazy person and he said to the engineers well this looks a lot better in real life and the guy's like i think john is his name he's like that's when i knew we were really onto something because he was just staring at like a crappy 3d model yeah. <laughs> but it was so immersive like the experience was so immersive for him that it made him feel like yep this is exactly what this will look like in real life <laughs> and of, the thing i love about it is this is borderline like pure research where they're developing this technology but they don't have they're not like married to one use for it so they want to do like this director thing where you build like a fake movie set so you can see what the scene will look like when it's filmed in that set and you can like fly the camera around and see from like bird's eye or ground level or whatever then they also want to do what you're talking about, like these interactive experiences where there's motion capture people you can't see. So the characters are like directly interacting with you and, and everything looks like you could reach right out and touch it. Well, I mean, even imagine like some of your favorite scenes of all time. If you could say, pause, I want to be in that room and I want to look around like I just like Blade Runner. He's in his apartment, one of the most iconic like future apartments ever created in sci-fi so like i just want to look around at all the the shit all over his tables <laughs> and walls and like just linger and that, i mean uh, video games have afforded that a lot but just like uh, that could be really exciting and like you know obviously some directors would be like no i don't have time like it's just you know it's painful enough to get what you see on the screen perfect <laughs> let alone to be responsible for having the whole environment live up to scrutiny but i could see some directors going no i i love this world i've created so much i'm gonna throw in so much more for the interactive side Oh, yeah. If you've ever watched any of the behind-the-scenes stuff for the Lord of the Rings series, there's so much detail that never makes it on screen. Like, the, the armor some of the orcs wear is, like, full down to the boots, even though you never see their feet. Like, every little detail is absolutely, 
you know, real world perfect. And it would be awesome to just like stop, you know, a huge battle like at the end of Return of the King and just walk around and like look at, you know, yeah. like, oh, this guy has this kind of design on his armor because he's an Urukai and this goblin has crappy armor because he's a goblin and f- goblins. And <laughs> like you could really get in close and see every little thing and like walk around Minas Tirith and, you know, jump off where the, the guy, you know, Boromir's son there falls off and her father falls off and dies. Like, I want to see that stuff because I don't know. I'm a huge nerd and I wouldn't expect like every movie to do that because one there's a lot of movies the the majority of movies are not so interesting that i want to be in the universe but then one of the the examples they show in this this video on the verge is the uh there's like some stormtroopers and they're walking and they're like going to a hut and at first the camera's like third person kind of video game style like up over them where every time the group turns the camera like perfectly turns with them and then he presses a button and without the scene stopping or pausing or juddering or anything the camera goes down into the eyes of one specific character so then when that character is standing in front of the hut talking and he like turns his head to the side like that's where the camera goes so you could re-watch a movie over and over and say like you know what was jim's experience of the movie what was mary's experience of the movie like how did each character you know live this story and I could see some really, really good writing and good directing leading to stories that are very different experiences from different characters. Like, whoa, you know, most Hollywood movies are a hero's journey, the hero's journey. Watch the hero be a hero. And it's like, no, I'm going to be the <laughs> some other character and see, oh, no, that guy's kind of a jackass and this actually <laughs> sucks. Or <laughs> I'm sure it would be an absurd amount of work. I don't know like exactly how you would do this, but it'd be interesting if... You know, like sometimes when you see a movie, it's through the eyes of a character. So someone is acting worse than they are because you're seeing it through the perception of that character. Like it would be amazing to film a short story where if you each time you view it from a different character, like the dialogue is different and people look slightly different because like, oh, well, Jim thinks Mary is really attractive. So when you're seeing it through Jim's eyes, she's like gorgeous. And then when you're seeing it through Steve's <laughs> eyes, she's like more plain looking because that's how he sees her. You know, like that would just the ultimate, like unreliable narrator kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Just, I mean, I think there's huge potential and, and I do, you know, being a Dis- big Disney fan, I have to thank them for giving little uh, shout out to, to Disney, like immersive experiences. They basically said, you know, we've, Disney World is like the ultimate immersive experience. You're in this entire shut-off universe where you're disconnected from the rest of the world and it really makes the experience something different because you have nothing else. You have no other point of reference. Which, by the way, did you look at that Dismal Land stuff, the new Banksy thing? I did. Did you see the ticket thing? No, I didn't. Okay, so apparently they were going to limit how many people could be in the installation at once. To like, I, I think a couple thousand or something, and there was this huge debacle, and they couldn't sell the tickets, and it wasn't working right, and the conspiracy train immediately started chugging along, saying, "No, that's part of it. That's part of the art. That the tickets, even <laughs> even something as simple as the tickets, wouldn't work right because you know that's just a more meta narrative on the." 
So I don't know. I I mean, it's neat. Like I like Banksy's stuff, even though I like Disney. Like it's still yeah. It, his critiques are still valid and interesting. I liked the the Shamu coming out of the toilet to jump through a <laughs> ring that it would not fit through. That was a well done sculpture. It looked really amazing. Yeah, it was that one. The only reason that bothered me is because that's that's not Disney. That's <laughs> Well, it's it's not Disneyland; it's Dismal Land. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was neat. Anyway, um, would you? Is this the kind of thing like this this VR thing? I know we talked about that park that's supposed to open up in Salt Lake where you can. Oh go. yeah, yeah. Is this the kind of thing you would travel for? Like when I see stuff like this, I'm like, I want to go and do that. Like I'm a homebody, but I would go out of my house to do this thing. Well, and I mean, even just seeing the Verge editor's reaction when he was just doing the Raptor thing, like he was, it wasn't just like, oh, cool, it's immersive 3D, it's like Oculus or something. He was like losing his shit about this. And his enthusiasm made me really like more than normal, just like, oh, I really got to try this thing. Yeah. And I think that's the really the only good way to share VR with third parties is to see the reaction of the person experiencing it. Because when they just describe it and they're like, it was very realistic. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, that doesn't really do it for me. Some people think books are very realistic because they get emotionally involved, but I like I want to see your reaction. So speaking of immersive experiences, um, I have my adorable two-year-old at home, who you may hear off in the background because she's having breakfast behind me. And uh, I've been trying to be considerate when I play video games late at night, so I started wearing my, my mixing headphones, these Sony MDRs, and... I am kind of in love with it now because I never really realized how crappy the speakers on every device I've ever owned <laughs> are. So yeah. like last night, you know, I'm, I'm playing Tomb Raider, which I think we need a segment on the show called like David finally plays. So I finally played and I beat it. I beat the, the remake of Tomb Raider and I'm like crouched down in this room and I'm listening to these guys talk about, the, the cult that they're in and how they're going to kill this girl and blah, 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 blah. That's not important. What's important is I was like patiently waiting for them to finish so I could shoot them in the back of the head when they turn around. <laughs> and so I was just rotating the camera around like obnoxiously fast. And I realized that every time her head turned, the sound was like I could hear it in the stereo headphones like moving around my head. And I was like, that's really minor and it's really stupid. And it didn't enhance my gameplay. I didn't say like, oh, I can hear them off to the left. But it made <laughs> the world feel more realistic, you know? It actually got so bad at one point where there's all this gunfire and there's like explosions and there's guys shouting that I thought someone was shouting outside my house to the point where I actually took my head. I paused the game. I took the headphones off and I went upstairs and said to Susan, like, did you just hear someone shouting outside? Like yelling at a dog or something and she was like no crazy it's just your video game no i i do think uh i feel i my heart goes out to sound designers because people will spend thousands of dollars on this amazing 60 inch television and you know the, the, the it'll be 4k and it'll have the best color depth ever and then they'll just let like the the the, the speakers that come with it are the worst thing ever and it's like compressed to hell and they'll just like whatever it looks great and you know <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, some people have sound systems and care a little bit, but um, I do think there is a nice trend the other way. Um, every single new console, the Wii U, the PS4, and I think the X-Bone, um, the controllers have headphone ports. 
So when That's when you get your PS4, you can just plug any headphones you want into your controller, not like 20 feet away into the console or something. Well, it's funny you should say that because the reason I never liked uh, surround sound systems is because unless you are a bachelor or you're like really tight with your spouse or your roommates, they probably don't want to listen to whatever you're listening to at full blast crazy surround sound volume. And the PS3 supports Bluetooth headphones, but I never, I have two pairs of Bluetooth headphones, but one of them sucks and I don't like them. I don't, I never use them. And then the other pair, it just occurred to me because I've been using my mixing headphones with my laptop. I was like, oh crap, I have nice Bluetooth headphones that I could use with the PS3, but you know what? Plugging them into the controller is way easier. Yeah. And you don't have to worry about like, oh, the controller battery died. Ah, oh, now my headphones battery died. Everything's dying. Yeah. So I've definitely done this when I played Counter-Strike a lot more heavily. I could play better because you can hear footsteps, which matter a lot in Counter-Strike. Because um, that's one of the biggest dynamic tricks you have is if you walk, you're silent. And if you run, you can hear people coming from like 20 or 30 meters away, which obviously helps you plan to shoot them when they come through the door. <laughs> I plan um, to shoot you. <laughs> but even in like other games, I just, you know, I don't do it all the time, but when I do wear headphones, I really enjoy how much sound detail there is. There's so much that goes in, not just the music, but like the the ambient sound of oh, some of these good games is incredible. And you really don't notice it if you're just like playing through the TV and it's pretty quiet because you don't want to disturb anyone. And you really only hear the dialogue or sound like the gunfire. I did notice in Tomb Raider that they did a lot of the uh I don't I don't want to just attribute it to Christopher Nolan but the like buzzing noise you know what I'm <laughs> talking about Yeah th- there's a lot of scenes where you're walking and like things are about to get tense so there's that like violin discordant a harmonic and it's low it's quiet but if I had it on my TV I'd never be able to hear it and the reason I started using headphones with the the laptop primarily is because in true Mac fashion, when you play a game, the fan goes like the entire yeah. time. So it's like, <laughs> I can't hear anything. It's not just that I'm not like getting the full experience. I was like, I can't even hear the freaking dialogue. So that was what actually made me start using headphones. And now like I'm addicted. So I, I think this, this may just be the new gaming norm. Although, <laughs> The the cord on the Sony MDRs is like 150 feet long. Yeah. So when this is plugged into a controller in my hands, I'm going to have it like wrapped around my neck like a like an infinity scarf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they re- I think these uh, studio headphones need to discover either replaceable cables so I can buy a short one <laughs> or um something like oh studio cables but everyone you know people aren't hooking into a sound system across the room people are hooking into their computer which is right in front of them yeah yeah replaceable cables would be nice just make it detach yeah would that a single additional connection really impact audio quality that much i don't think so I mean, some of the studio headphones I've owned are detachable. I just don't think they sold short cables. It was just like... Oh, right. It was just replaceable. Well, now we have uh, Monoprice. You could probably get them on there. Yeah, maybe. So the Washington Post tweeted out a picture of all of the TSA's master keys. And (laughs) this is a multi-layer story of amazingness, but... Let's start with the top part. So the person who tweeted this, Jonathan 
last name withheld. Um, he, <laughs> could you even guess? Do you have any? Well, ideas? there's three consonants to start the name, <laughs> and there's Z. Two of them are Z's. That's <laughs> that is not an Anglo-Saxon last name. Um, so, so the, the, this guy Jonathan tweeted this picture, and his whole thing is that this is like the a microcosm example of how government backdoors into encryption works because the TSAs have these master keys and these master keys work with what's called a TSA approved lock. So the TSA randomly searches checked bags. You put this kind of lock on there and then they don't have to break your lock off because they will do that. If your bag gets randomly selected, they will break your suitcase open if that means checking it. So you can buy these TSA approved locks and then they have master keys. Here's the thing. Um, You've been able to duplicate keys from a photograph for like the last 10 or 15 years because we've had high-res photography for a long time. Yeah. So by tweeting a picture of all of the keys in super high definition, you have now just given copies to literally everyone ever. Yeah. (laughs) And it's a picture on the internet. You can't take it back. Like these keys are all now worthless. All the locks that they work with are now worthless. All of them. I I do hate that this tweet is a, a screenshot of the tweet. Like, you're sharing a tweet. Why didn't you just quote the retweet? Because now, like, I have to, like, type in this guy's username like an animal to find the original tweet. <laughs> yeah, that's, he could have at least at mentioned the guy in the tweet. But, <laughs> but yes, it is. That is an awkward way to share this. But I think th- this is a really good way of, of explaining how, like, this is what happens when you think only the good guys will have access to your secure stuff. If the good guys have access, then potentially all the bad guys also have access. Everyone has access. There's no such thing as a secret door. And speaking of people who think the government can have special secret access, uh, Jeb Bush was quoted recently. Um, you know, this was in vague campaign speech mode, but he says that Jeb, that uh, he wants a quote, new arrangement with Silicon Valley. Um, and what he means by new arrangement is give us backdoor access to your stuff <laughs> and, let, and let us do our job. Um, and here's more, some more quote, some more dumbass quote from him. Um, he said, there's a place to find common ground between personal civil liberties and NSA doing its job. I think the balance has actually gone the wrong way. And that last part doesn't mean he thinks the NSA has over stepped its bounds and trampled on personal civil liberties he means that recent uh backlashes and encryption are going the wrong way and he's wrong and he's he's demonstrably demonstrably wrong that the industry hates this people (laughs) who are informed hate this it's just the government that wants control um, it's frustrating though because they keep spinning the same story that there's a way to do it. There's a special way to have access for us, but secretly protect it from everyone else. And this is kind of like: Have you noticed in a lot of Trump's speeches or or quotes? If you don't watch his stuff, which you probably shouldn't, but in a lot of his speeches, uh, when he's criticizing other politicians, he will say something like. You know, oh, I have a plan for how I would have handled Iraq. And then the person interviewing him will say, well, what would you have done? How would you have handled it? And he's like, well, I'm not going to tell you unless I'm made president. 
And I feel like that's the same kind of argument with this like backdoor encryption thing. They're like, oh, there's a secret way to do it where where only the good guys can get access. And then all the security experts are like, neat, tell us how. And they're like, oh, no, just let me do it. Just just take me on blind faith that this will not backfire. You just need to remember that most politicians don't have much expertise in hardly anything except raising money. <laughs> The the primary skill to be a politician is to be able to raise money through whatever. Either you're already rich, you are a persona that people like to get behind or think can win, whatever it is. That is the job qualification that gets you into politics most places. And especially after Citizens United, it just seems like even more so. Yeah. I would love to hear from a political historian if politicians have tried to overturn access to physical things. So like right now, if you had written down in your house, if you, Michael Edwards, who lives at 123 Fake Street, if you had written down in your house a manifesto for how you were going to like take over the world with a weather controlling machine, but it was all written on paper, that document would be legally safe. And they would have to find some kind of way to get into your house legally and come in and like obtain this physical document from you. But if it's in your email or you stored it out on a server, they're like, well, of course we should have access to that. And it's like, why? Why, of course, should you have access to other people's things? Just because yeah. it's ones and zeros and not carbon scrapings on dead trees? Like, this, it's totally yeah. arbitrary. Well, we know with things like email, it's from severely outdated metaphors where they treat email like a mailbox. And so anything you leave on the server is like abandoned mail that's been sitting in your mailbox for six months. Then the government has, you know, legally the government can go into a mailbox to get mail that's been sitting there for a certain amount of time because it's considered abandoned. Nothing on servers should be considered <laughs> abandoned or there should be some, maybe there's a metric you could invent like if it, I don't know what it would be because <laughs> how would you know that it was something I've neglected versus something I'm just storing because I don't want to lose it. Right. And that's the thing is I would say it makes way more sense to consider a private server or my account on like a, a business server, like storage in my house and not this, like you said, this outdated metaphor of like, Oh, well it's like a mailbox. It's like, no, it's not. It's not like that. We only call email email because otherwise people wouldn't know what to call it. Like that, that metaphor tying it back to uh, a physical real world thing is just so people understand it's a general purpose and function. It's not so you can, blanket apply every single rule from the yeah. physical world into the digital world if we were going to do that and limit digital stuff in that way we would just keep using physical stuff Ugh. i had anytime i hear a, i mean granted I, I typically lean way more democrat than republican anyway anytime i hear someone say on either side say something like oh we need these secure back doors i'm like nope that's it you're out like i don't I don't even consider you now. The sad thing is ignorance about how technology works is pretty bipartisan. It is. Uh, I've been, even with Obama's presidency, that's one thing I've kind of been consistently disappointed in is the civil liberties and tech policy stuff. It's pretty much veered toward this government getting backdoors type thing. Yeah. The terrorists have won, Mike. <laughs> uh going to go out and buy the google on or wait no the on, on hub. hub by google 
So, yeah, listener, if you didn't see this, uh, Google is making a consumer-focused router that they're, they're... Is it... Did they announce they're going to be selling it or is it actually out immediately? Uh, it's up for pre-order immediately, but in very un-Googly fashion, you could immediately pre-order it in like half a dozen different places, including Amazon. Ah, new yeah. egg fries. Well, and it's, it comes in blue or black. Um, it looks kind of like the Amazon Echo, but it's not in any way the same kind of product. Um, so it sounds like they're they're trying to make a, you know, routers are, you know, very historically routers are hard to use for normal people. Um, they have a whole bunch of settings. Like if you tried to tell, I'm not going to use a cliche, just someone who's not a techie person, <laughs> good man, to to update their router, that might be easy or it might be very very difficult for them. They have to type in a certain you know local host address to access the router settings and go through some probably poorly thought out UI from Linksys or Netgear. Um, so Google's trying to make this a lot easier. You know, the, the airports have been pretty easy, but like almost every other router on the market is probably not very easy for regular people to do this. Um, and I, I could see this, you know, that's, you know, not a, not a bad product area. I think routers should be easier to use. Um, but I also, you know, would speculate that this is part of Google's hope to, you know, as, as the connected home continues to slowly, frustratingly slowly emerge, (laughs) Um, the router could actually be a very important piece. So if Google wants to have that their their groundwork laid, um, making a router may not be a bad idea at all. Yeah, and they did some things that you can tell are trying to be googly in the sense that yeah, we just wanted to make a better version and and lead the way. We're not going to make money on this. We just want to set the <laughs> raise the bar and set a new trend. But they also did some things that are more directly in their interest, like. This supports, uh, what is it, Weave and, um, what's the other one? There's, there's Weave and something else, their other spec uh, for connected home stuff. But, of course, no other router has those things because why would they? Those are googly things. So yeah. they're trying to like help make this kind of like a standard and show like, oh, it's not hard to build in. You just throw this chip in there and then it can do these things and have these connectivity <laughs> And it's, you know, like you said, it's, it's super user friendly and it's, um, it's got like an array of antennas. So instead of like one big fat or, or two, some, you know, some come with two, this one actually is 13. It has five razors. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it is the Gillette fusion of, of Wi-Fi routers, but it is, it has a baker's dozen of antennas. It has six on the 2.4 gigahertz frequency, six on the five gigahertz frequency, and one on the I'm not sure what the last one does frequency, <laughs> but there are thirteen. Yeah, a congestion sensing antenna. So oh, I guess that, one, that one, one, that one that exists just to notice what your neighbors are using, and so you can avoid those uh, frequencies. But I, the thing is, I bought a new router not that long ago, but I still looked at this and I was like, ooh, I yeah. kinda, I kind of want that. But it's, it looks it, like a like a big like glass where you'd pour forty eight ounces of soda into it and then get <laughs> diabetes. <laughs> <laughs> it's the uh, what is it, the big gulp from Seven <laughs> Eleven, the child sized from Parks and Rec. <laughs> <laughs> I do kind of want one, but if I hadn't just bought a new router, I think I would do it. Even it is two hundred dollars, but it's you know future forward, so it's got. 
it's it has all the specs set up to be ready to go for like the next you know several years at least so a $200 investment on a device that works really well and is going to last you several years is not unusual it's i don't think that's an unfair price if it works as well as they say yeah. and, you know caveat 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 yeah 200 is also the same price as an airport extreme and more than most other routers yeah the one i have is actually it's a tp link so it's made by the same company that's actually manufacturing the on hub and i want to say it was like 130 or 140 it wasn't cheap but it works really well it came really highly recommended and uh, I kind of need to move it, though, because it's, like, buried in a corner, and I think it's been giving me some interference. And they actually say that one of the features of the OnHub <laughs> is that it looks nice, so you wouldn't feel bad leaving it out where people can see it. And that's one of those things that when I first read that, I was like, well, that's dumb. And then I looked at where my router is, and I was like, no, maybe that's not that dumb, because <laughs> my router looks sort of stupid. And and with routers, you actually kind of benefit from having it out because it'll just penetrate walls better if it's it's not crammed in a corner. Or I've seen people that put them in cupboards and close the door, and I'm like, you wonder why Wi-Fi stinks in your bedroom? It's because you added extra walls to your router. Yeah, um, it's in a box in a cupboard in your basement, <laughs> unplugged. So I was just looking at the specs, and I realized. I had like a whole emotional experience, but because <laughs> there was a moment where I was like, well, does it have USB so you can plug a printer into it? And then I said, wait, I haven't owned a printer in six months and I haven't even thought about that fact until just now <laughs> when I was like, does this thing have a feature I'm not going to use? Um, it it does have a USB port. I didn't read if you could hook a printer up to it, but presumably you could. And uh, also printers are Wi-Fi these days if you get a newer one. Um, but then I was like, wait, I don't, print anything if at all costs (laughs) so why am i thinking about this what's wrong with me that's just the tech elitist in you (laughs) like but is it gorilla glass three or four because when i wrap it in a giant otter box case i need to know that the glass underneath is the highest quality it only works up to 90 percent humidity Uh. (laughs) (laughs) so don't buy this if you live in florida wah wah (laughs) Um, it's got a, it does have a, a USB 3.0, so I'm sure that could work with high speed storage or a printer. But if you waste, if you could hook a, a like a, a streaming device up to this and you choose to hook up like a Canon inkjet, you don't, <laughs> you, you don't deserve to have this. <laughs> Fair enough. Jets of ink. Um, <laughs> we got some windows 10 stories and, uh, yeah, so Windows 10 won't run games that use certain old forms of DRM like SafeDisk or gamers will recognize Secure ROM um, because of some rootkit scandals in the past. Um, Windows 10 just uh, flat out won't run these games and the reason is security and we all knew this and argued this back then with these stupid DRM systems but now Microsoft has made the platform decision to block those things. And uh, the reason is because viruses could use those as loopholes to infect Windows 10. Right. And Windows 10 has a lot of smart sandboxing stuff built in, just like Unix has had for always since day one. And now, you know, Microsoft's finally jumped on that train, which to be fair, 
in Microsoft's defense, the reason it took them so long to come around to that is because they work so hard to support legacy stuff. So <laughs> this is a small They're step. They're hitting themselves so much. Well, just... <laughs> I mean, that's the thing. Is this? I mean, this is exactly what Apple went through between OS 9 and OS 10 is at some point you have just, you know, your foot is caught in the bear trap. You have to cut off that leg. Like, or you stay in the bear trap. Like those are your two options. You cut off your leg yeah. or you stay in the bear trap. So they have finally, you know, started to cut off the leg. They didn't completely <laughs> cut it off, but they're slowly working through. And, you know, a lot of people, especially gamers, are like, well, I have all these old games that now I'm not going to be able to play. And Microsoft's kind of like, yeah, sorry. <laughs> Why do you want our 2015 operating system to support your game from 1994? Does yeah. your Xbox One play Atari games? No, it does not. Like, you have to break ties with the past. So, I mean, then again, though, they said some game companies are going to release patches, like no-disc patches, so that you can still play these games somehow. Um, but then they also pointed to GOG, or goodoldgames.com, if you want a DRM-free version of some of these, especially the older games. And I've bought some games from GOG, and they're, they're great. Um, they, they've not just uh, removed disk requirements, but in many cases, they've, they ship you an emulator um, or you know a DOS box or you know whatever, just a whole setup so you basically double-click and you're playing the game on a modern machine and not thinking about it. Yeah, good old games is... I've only bought a few games from them, but they are, in my mind, the answer to this problem. Like, it's a contained package solution where they have worked with the publisher or the publisher voluntarily said, we're going to remove you know, the requirement for a disc, we're going to remove the DRM, and if we make a couple dollars off this 25-year-old product, then yeah. good for us. But otherwise, we just are kind of like, we're, we respect that this product has reached its end of life. Yeah. So I wonder if GOG will ever manage to set up, like, or some company, uh, basically a Netflix model of like, I just want access to all old games. I'll pay you 10 bucks a month. You know, I was wondering about that exact thing. And I thought about putting that in the rundown. And you just, you read my mind, Mike. <laughs> but I wonder how far we are from that kind of thing. Like a, you know, a, a, a 20 or a, a five plus years ago Netflix for games. Yeah. And would that kind of solve some of the freemium bullshit? Like... You know, I'm I'm paying my ten bucks a month. I don't want to pay more for any of these experiences. So just give me games, and there we go. Yeah, I think it probably would. And uh, I know that there are a lot of old games that I would play if I didn't have to jump through all these crazy hoops. So the idea of throwing out the old discs or the old God forbid you have like floppies, yeah emulate like a DOS box and do all that. And it's just a lot of setup when I just want to, and the thing is, I mean, if you're a kid and you're playing these old games, then maybe you have time to sit around and screw with all this. But if you're playing games from the early nineties, chances are you're in like your thirties or forties or maybe even older. And you just want to like put on your nostalgia goggles and take a trip down memory lane. And then it's like, well, now I have to install like a Windows 95 yeah. virtual machine and then boot into DOS mode. Like, and it, it, I mean, if you're of the camp and this is the right camp that understands that piracy is a, is a service problem, um, <laughs> realize that there are websites that host classic games in the browser that are just like 
brainlessly easy to fire up and then you're immediately using your keyboard to play these old games. And so if you're setting the service up, any like extra hoops you throw into it is just one more chance that I'm just going to be like, ah, I'm just going to go to the browser version. But, you know, you give me game saves, syncs, you give me, you know, a, a consistent interface that's, you know, good controller support, all this stuff that you could bake into a platform, you can convince me maybe, oh, well, I'll pay for that. Yeah, and I feel like there's an opportunity here for someone who loves gaming but either can't or doesn't want to actually make games because your contribution... As you know, like Netflix, I'm sure everyone who works at Netflix loves movie and TV, but they've only recently started making movies and and television shows. They really were just making it easier to access movies and television shows. So someone who really loves gaming in that same way could make this service and then say, well, I just want to share these games that I love with everyone. So everyone can play them easily and things like cloud saves and controller support, like you're saying, you know, all these these things we take for granted, like on Steam, but not everything's on Steam. You know? Oh man, good old games <laughs> in Steam should like they should like do a thing. <laughs> I a guess Squeenix. They're, they're kind of competitors, huh? So maybe they don't want to really share share their toys. Yeah. So uh, there's another article in the show notes that you can find at sunriserobot.net slash flipping table slash eighty one. And it's about how Windows ten is gonna disable your pirated games and software and i left it in because this is the article that led me to this story but really you should look at this other one that's in the show notes from GameSpot, where they actually took the extra step and updated it and said well microsoft's going to be able to disable pirated stuff if it's sold through the microsoft store or if it's an xbox game yeah so it's not just everything. Like if you pirate Photoshop and you have it on a USB key, I don't think they're going to be able to go in and just shut it off. So presumably this is because it'll be tied to like certificates that they issue developers for software that comes out of those stores. They can revoke them. That's like the Mac App Store can do something similar. Yeah. And I mean, that's part of the the enticing end if you are selling your product through the store is that they're like handling all the distribution and security and stuff so that you can just make your product and then give it to them right like if i have a, a physical product i don't want to have to know about shelf design like yeah i want to just give it to a store and then say have your people go put this on a shelf <laughs> so i don't think this is the crisis that a few of these gaming blogs made it out to seem um However, the one thing that did catch my eye that I thought was weird is apparently they're going to be able to disable drivers for cheating devices. And the example they give is like a controller with a turbo button or like a turbo <laughs> switch. And doesn't that just seem like weirdly yeah. invasive? Well, and also cheating is a matter of context. Um if I'm playing a, a single-player offline game, I don't think turbo buttons are cheating any more than easy mode is cheating. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I could see, yeah, for an online competitive game, using turbo provides an advantage in some games that isn't part of the agreed-upon competition. But um, it's not like a device is inherently a cheating device. I can't think of that 
being a thing. And and yeah, that's exactly where I'm at. Like, I don't think Microsoft has the right or the ability to actually make that distinction. So I'm guessing what actually happened is there's some vague terminology in the EULA and people applied it to the thing they care about, you know, which yeah. is gaming in this case, and extrapolated it and... I, I would be very fascinated to actually hear the first time this happens where somebody's playing a game with their turbo controller and they're like, I was just about to beat the boss and then my turbo controller was disabled and a warning popped up from Microsoft and said, you're cheating. Like that, <laughs> I, just, yeah. I don't foresee that happening. That's my, my take the second I read that was they'll never do it. Like the backlash isn't worth it. What do they gain? Um, and that the the only context I could see them doing something like this was a com- a competitive online game where they're like, "Hey, stop it!" Or oh, okay, here I just thought of two possible actual usable instances for this. So one is maybe what they meant is broadly is if you have a physical device that allows you to hack an Xbox or your Windows PC and use pirated software, we can disable that. So, like, we will disable physical devices if they are aiding in stealing pirated software or whatever like that. The other thing is I could see it being a user-facing option in a competitive gaming tournament where the people who are organizing the tournament could say, these types of controllers are banned. So if you even plug it in, it's not going to work. But it's not something Microsoft does. It's something the user does. Yeah. But they didn't announce a, a consumer tool. They, well, it's yeah. just a EULA. And I mean, people also need to remember that EULAs are always, if you actually read them, are basically what South Park parodied. Like, they, you are a human slave, part of a centipede. Like, they always <laughs> promise that they're allowed to do anything they want and also that they can change the list of things they're allowed to do, which is still anything they want. Um, EULAs are always this way. And... I do think they haven't been tested in court properly because I think that some of them could be thrown out as like, just because the user clicked something that said, I agree, we know no one reads these things. We know these are not reasonable contracts between companies and people. And I I don't think a lot of the craziest stuff we read in EULAs would ever even hold up in the first place, but they just haven't been tested. I agree. I also think it's funny that, uh, you know, you and I both working in academia for so long that syllabi are supposed to be legal contracts between a teacher and a student and yet everyone i've ever seen includes a line that says i could change this at any time without notice for any reason (laughs) then why have a contract like i'm not a legal expert but somebody tell me if the terms of the contract can be changed for any reason at any time without notice then why have it in writing yeah or why have it be in writing and considered an agreement like I don't know. It's confusing to me. Let's talk about Mario yeah. Maker. Yeah, this this will be our this will take us out. Though we've got quite a few little details on this. This game looks so fun. <laughs> um, so tell me about this article of Nintendo's uh, teaching you how to design. So the way Mario Maker is scoped, you do not get all of the tools right out of the gate. So you have to play the game for a certain amount of time before you get access to some of the more advanced features. And then on top of it, you cannot share a level publicly that you have not beaten yourself. (laughs) So you you can't make an unwinnable level. You can make a level that's absurdly difficult, but it has to be winnable. 
So there's these like little things built directly into the way the user interacts with the game to make the levels that get shared worth sharing. Like you can't just share garbage. You can't just cheat people out of their time and you can't uh, go to the advanced features immediately and feel overwhelmed and then be like, ah, crisis of choice and then just give up. Like they, they've made it, they've made some smart decisions to make it better for the designer and then way safer for the the player. Yeah. And this is actually something I've seen in Nintendo's games. I mean, maybe this is a, a new evolution in it, um, but they've understood this concept of scaffolding forever. Like every single one of their games, pretty much, I think you would, it would be hard pressed to find exceptions to this. Like there's a new game mechanic. Here's an easy way to do it. Here's a slightly more complicated way to deal with it. Now here's the boss where you have to like, we're not going to tell you anymore how to do this. <laughs> and like they, they do this over and over. And that's why people find their games fun. Cause again, you aren't immediately frustrated with something you've never seen and have no clue how to deal with. It's, uh, you know, even though I, like, people always point out like, you know, Mega Man X did this amazingly. We've talked about, but the first Mario also does it where like, at first, you run right, and immediately there's a Goomba, and then you're just like, ah, and you jump. <laughs> and uh, a lot of times, you'll end up jumping and hitting one of those coin blocks. And so right away, they've taught you a whole bunch of things um, just by presenting the right obstacles in a very simple way to you. And uh, it seems like they're doing that with UI. And this Fast Company article seemed to wish for this for software, which I don't know if it always works so well with uh, any software. Um <laughs> I, I mean, I do get it when you open up, you know, Adobe Illustrator or Photoshop or anything Adobe makes. Um, if you're not an expert, it is overwhelming. You're just like, oh, my God, <laughs> what am I looking at? Um, but then again, you know, you've seen me when, like, if I open Logic on a new install, I'm like, oh, it's on baby mode. God, get out of here. <laughs> well, I think the difference, because they, they definitely make that parallel to Photoshop in this article. And I think the main difference is, if you sit down in front of a pro tool, you either can bail at any time and Adobe doesn't care or you're incentivized because it's like your job to get good at it. Whereas with uh, with Mario Maker, it's like they want you to they have to hook you right like they have to give you a reason to stay by making it fun and engaging and approachable. So, yeah, it would be weird if. Like they say in this article, like, oh, I, I couldn't finish this project in Photoshop because I haven't yet unlocked the magic wand tool. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that, that would be weird. But the idea of slowly teaching people how to play the game, even if the game is a creator type game, there's still a path you can follow to ease people in instead of just being like, ah, a million buttons, do all the things. <laughs> yeah. Um so you also shared this uh, Metroid level in Mario Maker, and the the guy that this is a fascinating level. It's just like a totally like almost an entire world in this level. Um, but the guy points out in the comments that the time limit is kind of a, a limiting factor when you're trying to create like entire games inside a level, a, um, an but, entire exploration game. Yeah, but then I also have to point out. So I mean, you should look at this YouTube video and see this crazy level. Um, but it, there's this comment: and if you want to try the level out, the ID is five seven seven eight zero 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 ff four seventy four. And I'm like, God damn it, Nintendo! Like they're basically friend coding the levels instead of like having a proper search interface. Like, hey, search for my channel on Mario Maker. Yeah, or actually building a proper like interface. It's like dial in. <laughs> 
This is one thing that Nintendo has just not really ever gotten right. And fortunately, it's fairly minor. Like, it's a minor-ish part of the experience. But when you have a game centered entirely around sharing content, now it might be time to streamline that experience. (laughs) Yeah, because, like, maybe I only add a few, you know, 10, if I'm generous, 10 friends to my Nintendo friend codes. Then I'm done. Like, I'm not doing that. But Mario, I could see I want to explore dozens and dozens and maybe even 100 levels, and that's going to be tedious. Yeah, I think uh, Little Big Planet did this really well. Yeah. Where you could just search for the name or the user and see everything made by that user, or you could search for stuff by, like, the rating on that level or other, like, components of the level, so... Yeah, they had like a whole tagging system. So you just want race car levels, like you want crazy ramps. You could find those. Um, This is a time where it's good that we live in the age of software patching because they could add that stuff. They could say like, oh, look, we upgraded the way you search for stuff in Mario Maker. Yeah. Maybe. They won't, but they they could. (laughs) (laughs) They will never do it, but they could. Um, Also pointed out recently by our our friend of the show, Benji, um, a video where uh, they were showing off how you can actually record your own sound effects for any event in Mario. So, you know, the coin boxes or, you know, you hop on a Goomba or anything. Um, You can now replace that with whatever you want, including like full length quotes, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I didn't realize you could also attach sounds to things that did not previously have sounds like the act of moving forward. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So that, you know, people were Wilhelm screaming when you hop on a Goomba or what my favorite was like the, like the home improvement. Tim Allen. Yeah. (laughs) They, uh, the thing that I, I like, there were my two favorite parts in this video and they did a really good job in this polygon video of like explaining the joke, showing some clever things, way overdoing it and then the video ends like it's about three minutes and right around the time you're like oh god this is still happening it's done (laughs) but they uh they did for one of the goomba stomping noises it was uh what's his name there the president of reggie fees reggie i wanted to say randy i knew that wasn't right yeah the my body is ready so he jumps on the Goomba and it just goes, you know, it's all echoey. It's a crappy recording. And it's just like, my body is ready. It's so weird. But the one that caused me the most like joy and cognitive dissonance was they used the sonic ring noise when you get a coin. So I'm looking at this visual of Mario jumping and getting a coin and it's making that like, like kind of ringy noise. And is it like the cognitive puzzle where it's like the word red, but it's colored green? And like yes. you're supposed to say the color, not read the word. <laughs> exactly. Like, yeah, it just blew me away. I was like, oh my God, I want to play a whole like fake Sonic Noises level that looks like the first <laughs> level of Mario, but sounds like, you know, the Green Hill Zone. Uh, it was bizarre. You have this on pre-order, right? You've got to. I did. I did not pre-order it, and, and this is where maybe maybe I'm a jerk, but as it looks amazing, I want to play this thing. I will own it at some point. But <laughs> I see sixty dollars, and I for some reason I'm like, this isn't. This is a twenty thirty dollar thing, right? <laughs> and like the sixty dollars is kind of scaring me off because I'm like, I don't know. Am I unreasonable? Would it be worth waiting to see if there's a lot of um, like playable shared levels? 
Yeah, maybe I'll wait and see if like, you know, there's a thriving community and like after the initial first month hype where, you know, R slash gaming is obsessed with posting their Mario levels, um, see if people are still doing it like six months later. That was kind of the experience I had with Little Big Planet because, and this wasn't really entirely the community's fault, but what happens when you have access to making stuff? You make classic video games in your new video game. That is always a hundred percent of the time what happens i mean look at this thing where this guy made this metroid world where you have to like explore and backtrack and do all metroidy stuff and it's super cool but you only have 500 seconds to beat it so it's not a perfect simulation of the experience but in little big planet people made the first level of sonic they made the first level of mario they made you know famous levels from zelda and all this stuff and they imported music and sound effects and graphics so that they could do it and then sony came along either because they were prodded or because they felt like they had to, and they shut all of that down. Yeah. And the community just kind of said, like, well, you know what? Screw you. Like, if you're not going to let us build the stuff we want to build, then we just won't build anything. And that really put a hamper on the amount of cool stuff that was being shared because you took your most engaged users and told them to piss off. Not good community building. Which Nintendo doesn't have a great track record on themselves. I mean, with the Let's Play story... Yeah. Yeah. But that that's why that makes me a little bit nervous. So I mean I don't have a Wii U anyway, but my involvement with Mario Maker may be strictly relegated to YouTube videos, assuming they don't take all those YouTube videos down. <laughs> They'll so, just take all the revenue. Yeah. Um, right. So the, to to close out our episode, we have one last story, and that's uh, there's a, a rumor that has appeared that uh, so Nintendo's already said they're working on NX or their next console, which um, you know I think it's been three years since the Wii U came out, or this fall it'll be three years. Maybe yeah, it sounds four. believable. Anyway, it's like a little bit shorter than most consoles survive, but to be fair, the Wii U has not done nearly as well as any of Nintendo's other consoles. Um, especially not the Wii, which, you know, software aside, sold like crazy. Um, so the the rumor is that this next system will be discless, which uh, isn't that controversial to me and makes a hell of a ton of sense. Um, I was wondering how long until we were done with discs, um, but we're also probably done with being able to trade and share games, so sorry about that. But See, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Ugh. I just I want to I want to be able to say okay uh Mike has a Nintendo NX and I have a Nintendo NX and Mike can share a game with me but while I have it like I have it then he can't play it there you have perfectly simulated the physical disc experience no DRM no other BS required yeah. We still get to share stuff. Everything's fine. And even say, like, there's only, like, this is intended for families. There's only three or four other people you're allowed to do this with, and you name them. It's fine. I'll have my little inner circle of, like, my brother and you, and right. that's probably it. <laughs> yeah, I. but, I mean, even if it was, even if the doors were open and you could just share it with anyone, you can't play it while you're sharing it with people. So you're mildly disincentivized from just being like, yeah, total strangers take my game and maybe never return it. You know, there's, there are ways to do this with like social constructs where you don't have to say like, Oh, well you bought a game and Oh, your, your cousin also has a Nintendo NX. Well, they're not allowed to play any of your games. They need to buy their own damn games. Go buy two copies of our games. Like that's, 
I don't know. And I, I, I won't, I don't know that they're going to do that, but everyone else that has ever gone digital has done that. So that feels like that's probably the direction they're going to go. Steam has a family sharing thing. I mean, not every publisher has opted into it, but um, it's pretty good. I, I think by all accounts. And, uh, I think Sony has some functionality where I can share my library in a way. Uh, I know I've heard about it on Steam. Um, I've never heard on Sony. Digital games you can share? Um, let me look it up. There's family sharing on one PS4. We're going to do some live research. <laughs> oh, it could Let's be see. new to PS4, and maybe that's why I don't know about it. Yeah. Um we're going to have to follow up on this. <laughs> There's something. Tune in next time. So yeah, Nintendo's next system. I I mean, I'm a fanboy. I I will get it. Um <laughs> I just hope it's actually uh they're able to 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 make some better headway and be a third pillar on the console world and not just a a enthusiast only machine. I'm starting to wonder if this really is the last generation of dedicated gaming consoles because i really feel like that's on its way out like if it's if this isn't the last generation i think the 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 upcoming generations the sales are going to continually go down as more publishers go multi-platform because if i already have a powerful computer and i can play games on it am i really going to buy a dedicated separate device you know like there was a time when my crappy Packard Bell 77 megahertz processor could barely run, you know, Pong. But now, like, my laptop is as... It's more powerful than my PS3. Yeah. It's damn near as powerful as, like, an X-Bone or a, a PS4. It's still cognitively more more work for the, the average non-techie to think about playing games on it, though. Um, it's getting way easier. App stores are that much closer to basically plug and play, but the, I mean, the consoles are so heavily geared towards you got a controller. All right, play immediately. And that's true. Computers always have that barrier. Maybe we'll have like a hybrid generation where let's say like, I mean, Microsoft's already set up for this where they could say, okay, this is now the Xbox two or whatever stupid thing will come after the Xbox (laughs) one. So this this new device, yes, there's dedicated hardware, but every single piece of software written for the Xbox 2 will also be playable on Windows with an Xbox controller or any other controller that'll connect via USB, and all the same features will be there, and all the same everything will be there, and then they could use that as kind of a phasing out time where it's like, okay, yeah. if you want a dedicate, you want your Steam box, you know, you want a dedicated gaming hardware, go for it. But if you already have a powerful gaming PC, then you don't have to buy the next generation Xbox. All the Xbox games will also be on PC. So, I mean, they're like, they're set up to do that. You can also see Sony's hedging their bets by, you know, they bought Gakai and they're doing the streaming, you know, PlayStation Now or whatever it's called. Um, now, HBO Go Now, PlayStation. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, you know the, the Vita TV or, you know, or I guess it's PlayStation TV is what it's called. So maybe this new Nintendo console will basically be like a, a Roku or an Apple TV with enough horsepower to play games. And basically it's intended to be more of a streaming box or, you know, like one of those little squares. And, you know, everyone's kind of watching if, if Apple's finally going to have an SDK and an app store for their Apple TV, you know, that everyone thinks they're about to announce. 
Um, I think the the tiny ninety nine dollar box is going to get even more competitive. Um, TVs are going to be built in. I mean, my we just got a a newer Samsung TV. It has PlayStation Now built in. I can pair a PS3 controller to my TV. Really? I don't even need an extra box. Um, <laughs> if the latency wasn't too annoying, but they'll fix that in ten years as infrastructure catches up. Well, and your little dedicated box could still have a gigantic hard drive on it where it yeah. it's like, yeah, you're streaming the game, but really it downloads most of it so that it plays better. Like there are technical solutions to this. And I, I wonder, you just made me realize with uh the the streaming service that, that Sony's kind of hedging their bets against, are they going to use that as their bridging? So instead of having another physical device that streams they'll just say oh install the playstation tv app on your laptop and sign in at this browser because browsers are getting more and more gpu intelligent even your chromebook can play an hd game oh that'd be exciting i just feel like the doors are are totally off like this is a jeep without doors The, the access to content could be virtually unlimited and it's all social things holding us back. It's all these weird business rules and old guard and all these dumb constructs from that's the way we've always done it and we don't know how we would charge if we did it that way. <laughs> but the technology is really a lot closer. They always act like, oh, there's latency and oh, streaming issues. No, there's ways around that. You can locally cache stuff but not make it accessible unless you have a live connection so that it simulates a streaming experience. There are lots and lots of ways to handle these problems technologically, but business-wise, we're just not there yet. And that's annoying because that's a switch. The technology has to be developed, but the rules are just arbitrary rules. Nintendo could just say like, oh, you know what? Here's a little box. It's the size of a 3DS. You plug it into your TV. You give us $9 a month, and you'll have access to every game we've ever made up until like the Wii era. Yeah. Just boom, Netflix for Nintendo games. I, I hope they're thinking that that out of the box about this. I I'm really interested because I do think Nintendo is that kind of wild card. It's like they're weirdly conservative in some ways. Like you know their online services have been lost in the dark ages forever, <laughs> but then in other ways they're just willing to like flip the table and do something totally like oh you can do that. That's something we can do. Oh crap. <laughs> and I want to see them do that. I want to see them always be this gadfly that like pokes Sony and and now Microsoft. Yeah, I think uh I think Nintendo does have that potential and because they've kind of been dragging their feet with online services, it would be really exciting in the technology and gaming space if they came out of nowhere and were like, "Boom, we just revolutionized streaming gaming." And everybody was like, "Oh, <laughs> crap, we had no idea you were working on that." <laughs> yeah. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. Would you, if you, so let's say that device I just made up in my head and existed. It's a little tiny box. You pay nine ninety nine a month and you get access to every game. Let's say up through the GameCube era. So every Nintendo game, every Super Nintendo game, every uh, N64 game and every GameCube game, you could stream them all unlimited to this little box for 10 bucks a month. Would you find that interesting? Yep. Yep. Even though you already own like six copies of most Nintendo <laughs> games. If they, uh, yeah, it's cloud saves, save states that are faster, like modern emulators where it's like instantaneous. So I can, you know, actually beat Zelda 2. <laughs> yeah, seriously. 
You know, and the thing is, even though I consider myself more of like a Sony gamer, um, I would totally buy that from Nintendo. I, I would buy, you know, a $100 box, and then I would pay $10 a month for unlimited access to all of their, you know, GameCube and back era games. It'd be cool if they threw in Wii, but I know that's kind of getting to the point where streaming is a little... Yeah. Uh, Wii's basically GameCube in terms of horsepower, so... <laughs> <laughs> Take that, Nintendo. All right, you ready to put a bow on this? Yep. So you can find the show notes for this episode, including that crazy Metroid Mario Maker level and the bizarre Tim Allen <laughs> Mario Maker level <laughs> at sunriserobot.net slash flipping tables slash 81. Mike and I both love feedback, so if you have any crazy Mario Maker levels you want to share with us or any other weird things you want to shout out, you can find both of us on Twitter. I am at Lines and Beta, and Mike, you are? At Medwords Music. And while you're doing that, you can command T, open up a new tab, and head over to sunriserobot.net and subscribe to the show. That way, every week, new episodes just get crammed into your podcatcher automatically. You don't have to do anything. If you're using an iOS device, you've got a built-in iTunes app already that does all the podcast magic for you. If you're on Android like I am, you can use Pocket Casts or Podcast Addict or, God, there's like a million of them. Many of them are free. <laughs> Pocket Cast is six bucks, but man, it's so worth it. And if you want to go even another step above and beyond, you could go into iTunes and give us a rating. We love all those ratings and reviews. We check them all out. We really appreciate that. Helps other people find the show, so you're doing good for your fellow man. And then if you want to go absolutely super Mario Maker level above and beyond, you can go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash Sunrise Robot. Support what we're doing. Every single dollar helps. We really appreciate everybody who's a supporter. And if you support at a high enough level, you might actually get a shout out at the end of some of our shows. So with that, we want to say special thanks to Bruce Edwards, Matt Mariner, Sean Byrne, and Andreas Longo. We couldn't do it without you guys. We love you so much. Woo! <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>